We live in a independent and DIY culture. We love to pride ourselves with doing things ourselves. YouTube, for example, has created the opportunity for all of us to become experts at anything that we want to pursue. You can literally find a video on YouTube to do practically anything you want to do. If you want to learn how to play the piano, there's a video for that. If you want to learn a foreign language, there's a video for that. If you want to learn how to fix a leaky faucet or an outlet that won't work, there are videos upon videos for that. If you want to learn how to cook, the art of Tai Chi, whatever it is that you want to do, there are videos for that. Within just a few short minutes, we can turn ourselves from modest novice to masters at whatever we want. But, as anyone would really, if they had any sense of reality, know, that in order to learn anything as complex as an instrument like the piano, or fixing a faucet, or learning how to cook, we know that we cannot become masters in and of ourselves but there is this insatiable desire in us to be independent. It's not because we're cheap and we can't spend the money to hire a plumber or an electrician or to, to pay for piano lessons. Though perhaps that's somewhat motivating us and why we want to just quickly get on YouTube. There is a sense in us, a, a de independent. We want to do it ourselves. We want to do it our way. And there's some in which there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with learning how to fix something yourself, for example. But it is this independent spirit that often runs us into trouble when we get into spiritual matters. It is this independence that typically shows up most clearly in our prayerlessness. We pray little because all we need is a quick video to fix our problems. We have a marriage problem, and so we watch a marriage video. Uh, we have a discipleship issue, so we watch a discipleship video. We look for quick fixes to spiritual problems. We pray little because we are on our way, we are on our way rather, to becoming masters of our own lives. All we need is a quick fix, or so we think. We pray little because we think of God as no more than a benevolent grandfather ready to fulfill all of our life's dreams. When we pray, we often are the object of our own prayers. Consider for a moment what it is you actually pray for. Now, perhaps you're like many, you just rotely pray. You, you pray the same prayers every day. Have you ever paused for a moment and thought about what you're actually praying for? Or perhaps you are more thoughtful in your prayers and you have a prayer list. Perhaps you pray through writing down perhaps other prayer requests. Have you considered how man-centered your prayers often are? Prayers for physical need, nothing wrong with that. Prayers for temporal 
provisions? Think with me, when, the, when, the, when was the last time you prayed? Perhaps it was this morning. What was it that you prayed for? What was it that you wanted God to do? How is it that you wanted God to act? What was it about the character of God in your prayers that motivated you to pray? Now, we are accustomed to really having two attitudes about prayer. So stay with me for just a minute, because I think this is important for you to hear. We often approach prayer with two attitudes. Number one... We use prayer as a means for selfish gratification. We don't recognize it. It's not on the surface. But subconsciously, we use prayer to satisfy selfish gratification. We pray for comfort. We pray for healing. We pray for physical things in order to make life easier. Secondly, the other attitude that often approaches is that we avoid to pray. We have this attitude of avoidance because we think we don't need to pray. So those are often our two approaches. And thankfully, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals with both attitudes in this text. Both the avoidance to pray... And also the selfishness that often accompanies our prayers. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, stop doing this. He helpfully helps us understand what we should be doing in this well-known passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Before we dive into it, just to remind us of where we've been and where we're going here in the sermon. Jesus has been warning his disciples to avoid the righteousness That is external rather than internal. There is a a religiosity, a spirituality that that one can conform to that is external only and not internal. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he has taught his disciples and us to pursue a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And here in chapter 6, he has shifted... To really dive into this matter of an internal righteousness rather than an external. Jesus calls these religious leaders hypocrites. Those who have this sort of external but no internal. Their righteousness was, was only external. It was only for show. It was just to impress others rather than to pursue an inward and lasting transformation in their hearts. And so Jesus begins by setting out this principle that you and I as Christians, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, are to pursue an inward transformation in our hearts. What God is most concerned about is not our external actions, but our internal behaviors, because it is from the heart, Jesus will teach later in the the Gospel of Matthew, comes these things. And so Jesus here addresses in these three illustrations of giving, praying, and fasting, areas in which Jews would have been most tempted, and perhaps you and I could be tempted, to make a show. We considered a couple of weeks ago that sometimes we can turn giving or be tempted to turn giving into an opportunity to impress others rather than God. And this morning we'll consider prayer and next week fasting, how 
often we can take religion and turn it into an opportunity for self-glorification rather than for the glory of God in Christ. So I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 if you've not done so already. Much has been written about these verses. We could spend weeks meditating on particularly the Lord's Prayer as it's known. And uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll give a 30,000 foot view of it this morning and leave for later, later study of the finer details. Beginning in verse 5, Jesus speaking, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither Will your father forgive your trespasses? Well, as we think about this section of, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clearly sets forth the principle that Christians are to pray. Christians are to be praying people. Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are to be praying people. We are to pray. Throughout there, it is assumed when you pray, he says. When you pray, when you pray. And then again in verse 9, pray like this. Jesus here doesn't teach that we should pray. Jesus doesn't uh, seek to defend the theology of prayer uh, by, Im by Im giving imperatives to pray. Rather, he assumes that a disciple of his will be a praying disciple. That a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ will be one who prays. And so Christians are defined as those who pray diligently by faith. You see, there's a kind of prayer that is faithless, void. Uh, it is empty, an empty praying. And Jesus addresses this empty praying, this, this faithless praying in these first two illustrations. And then he gives us a pattern for how to pray. Again, to be very clear, Jesus here is not uh, commanding us to pray. It's assumed that we will pray. And Jesus is after that when we pray, we pray in a certain way. Now, on the front end, as you're actually listening to me, because I know most likely, like perhaps you fade away as we go through this sermon. That's okay. We're going to deal with something right here on the front end. And that is, Jesus does not say that what I want you to do is recite this prayer by rote. Jesus here isn't after you just pr literally reciting the Lord's Prayer. 
Alright? So Jesus isn't saying, all I want you to do is just say these words after me. Right? Uh, rather, Jesus is giving us a framework, a pattern for how our prayers should be structured. There are aspects of an everyday Christian prayer life that is missing from this. For example, confession is missing from this. Um, there are aspects of, of normal everyday prayer that is missing. The prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving is, is not in this Lord's Prayer. Does that mean we don't pray a, a prayer of thanks? Not at all. Other scriptures deal with that. Rather, what Jesus is doing here is orienting our hearts. You see, if your heart is oriented to the right theology about God, then you will pray the right way. See, it's the wrong theology about who God is that creates this sort of selfish, gratifying prayers that we so often are accustomed to hearing. And so the purpose of our time is really for us to pray the way Jesus instructs us to pray. To allow our lives to be transformed and shaped by this pattern prayer. So first, we see prayers to be avoided. Secondly, then we'll see uh, the pattern prayer. So first, avoid empty prayers, Jesus says. Avoid empty prayers. Jesus offers here two types of empty prayers. First, in, in verses 5 through 6, Jesus here says, Avoid praying for the praises of men. But pray in secret to a God who sees in secret. Jesus identifies what the hypocrites were doing, these religious leaders. They loved to go out and pray in, in places where people would hear them. Now, it is not wrong to pray in public. Jesus isn't, isn't condemning public prayers. After all, we would all be in sin this morning because we prayed publicly, right? Jesus isn't after public prayers. A, a devout Jew would have prayed naturally out loud. At several times throughout the day. Uh, of course, the pinnacle example in the Old Testament of that would have been Daniel. Uh, praying three times throughout the day, even though he was commanded not to pray. And so, uh, Jews would have naturally prayed publicly. But it's not so much the publicness of the prayer, but the motivation in the public prayer. Notice what he says. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen. Purpose statement, they may be seen by others. You see, the purpose for their public prayers wasn't that God would see, that God would hear, but that others would hear. Now, if you've been a Christian a, a number of years, you have seen this hypocrite, haven't you? Oh, you've heard him pray. He, he, he has the ability to remember King James language, doesn't he? When he stands and prays, oh, thou my God, right? I mean, just, you're right? And it tends to get a little boastful, and a, you know, right? You all have seen this prayer. You all heard this prayer before. One who prays that others may be wowed by them. I remember as a young seminary student sit, sitting and you listen to the way uh, young seminary students would, would pray. And, and often they would pray as if they had been hanging out with Jesus all day. But in reality, they were praying all these big theological words in order to impress the professor and not to impress God. And Jesus here warns against such empty praying that where we might be tempted to pray in such a way that we care more about what men have to say than the one true object of prayer. You see, what's happening here is that the object of worship has changed from God to man. 
This is what Jesus will address in the Lord's Prayer. Interesting enough, Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer by by calling attention to the worship of the one true and living God because that is the very fundamental issue that was missing. Prayer had been turned into a means of self-glorification rather than the glory of God. And notice the theology that Jesus uses to address this issue. That is the character of God. And this is a principle I want you to understand. That your prayer life will be transformed as you understand and to the level and depth in which you understand the character of God. You pray little because you don't know God. Because if you knew the God of the Bible, your knees would be bent every day and all day. You see, this is what Jesus is addressing here in this particular passage. Look here at verse 6. But when you pray, he says, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus describes here, and and some have taken this a a little too literally, um, but Jesus isn't after literally going into some closet or something of that nature and praying. Jesus is after the heart, all right? So so for all you fundamentalist literal folks, just chill out for a moment. Jesus doesn't mean literally find the most inner room in your home and close the closet and be weird. All right. That's not what Jesus is after here. He is after your heart. In other words, go to a place where where you're not tempted to put on display your prayer life. Go to a time, a place. It, it may not be a place, it may be a time. Go, go to a particular time of the day where no one can see you. Let the one object of your prayer life be God and not you. But when you pray, he says, go into your inner room, shut the door, right? Be isolated, shut away, closed off. And here's the theology. Look what he says. Your father who is in secret, who is in secret. In other words, the object is is unseen, the unseen eye of God, the omniscient eye of God, the all-knowing and all-seeing God. This is who you're praying to. And then he reiterates this idea, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, Jesus doesn't develop the theology of the fatherhood of God. In this sermon, he just leaves it for your own mind to be informed later by the apostles teaching on this matter. But this is a profound statement. We're going to deal with it in just a moment in the Lord's Prayer in a moment. But it would have been unheard of for a Jew to have understood themselves to be in a relationship with God such that they would have called him father. There's just a number of obscure Old Testament passages that even alludes to this theology. Jesus here is indicating that there is a new relationship between the Christian and God. Namely, that they are a son or daughter of the Father. And he says, go to the Father who's in secret and pray to him. In other words, when you pray publicly in order to impress others, your object of worship has turned from the one true and living God and his character to another. This theme of the all-knowing omniscient God who knows all and sees all is throughout chapter 4. Jesus addressed it in the giving. When we give to the needy, he says, give to your God 
who sees. And then in fasting, seek uh, your, your God who sees. Look there at verse fast may not be seen by others. Verse 18, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, this is the theme. What reward, what, what treasure are you looking for? I, I hit this point pretty hard two weeks ago. Are you aiming for temporal treasure or are you aiming for eter- eternal treasure? Jesus, of course, will spend an entire section beginning in verse 19 on laying up treasure in heaven. Rewards in heaven. In other words, he's, you're wasting your time if all you want is the praises of men. Seek the praise of God. Well, he goes on by saying not only avoid the, pray, avoid the temptation to pray for the praise of men, but avoid praying, he says, without faith. But by faith, believe that God knows your every need. Look what he says, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, much to do about nothing has is, is been made of this passage. What, what exactly Jesus means. Uh, first, he deals with the Jews. Now, he deals with the Gentiles. He deals with a practice among the Gentiles in which they would have perhaps recited certain words over and over again. We don't know exactly what, what this would have been. But Jesus here addresses the very heart of the matter. For they think... It is their heart, it is their faith, it is their belief that they will be heard for their many words. So there's a correlation between the the quantity of their words and this deity's action. They thought that by having a lot of things to say, they would be able to twist the arm of such deity that would then act. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't approach God like the Gentiles do, thinking that you need to twist God's arm in order to get him to act. Perhaps that's been your approach to prayer. God won't hear my prayers because I I did this. Because I didn't do this. You see, we often do it through other spiritual disciplines, we don't read our Bibles. We don't attend church. We don't do something. And we think that God doesn't love us and that God can't hear our prayers. God, we, we, we treat God and we try to entreat God and impress him with our gifts of righteousness as if this is the means by which he will act. That's not what Jesus says. Look at what Jesus says. He says, Do not be like them. Why? Verse 8. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now think about what Jesus is saying in this passage. That when you pray, you are not praying to inform God of anything. Isn't that how we often treat prayer? Hey, God, did you know what's been going on in my life? There's some stuff going on and I'm really struggling here. I need you to really show up in this way or do these things. God's not like, wow, thank you for sharing that with me. I did not know that. Not at all. 
Prayer is not a means of communication to inform the all-knowing God. Notice what he says. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't it fascinating that he uses that family language again? Isn't it true that that our, our earthly fathers, our earthly parents know what we need before we even ask it? Isn't there a sense of humility, right? If you've parented any child in your life, if you've, you've ever led any person younger than you, perhaps in work, perhaps wherever you are in life, isn't that truth that young folks don't quite understand what they need until they humble themselves and they come to the realization, oh, this is what, you, this is what I need. But the character of our God is one who knows And so prayer is not mere communication, but a posture of dependence on the one true God who can supply our need. Notice what he says. Don't be like them. Don't don't think that your God doesn't know what you need or that you have to somehow convince God through your many words, but rather pray by faith, knowing that God knows what you need. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God already knows what you need? So why pray if God already knows your needs? It's a great question. If the truth is that God already knows what I need before I ask him, why do I need to pray? Why don't I just just sort of sit back and let God act? Because it is the strange providence and mystery of our eternal God that he would invite his people into this process. That God uses the prayers of his people to bring about his eternal purposes. This is a tremendous mystery, one I cannot explain, but it is how our God acts. Our prayers are the means God uses to act. And he knows our every need. This means that our prayer lives must be that of faith. Seen both in the object of our prayers. You see, when you understand who you are praying to, you will not be tempted to be like the hypocrite that sees himself as the object of prayer. When you understand that God is the object of prayer, not yourself, then you will pray by faith. When... When you are tempted to pray as the Gentiles do, thinking that what God is after is quantity over quality. God is after quality in prayer time. You don't have to pray for thousands of minutes in order for God to hear you. It is not as if God is going to hear you. Again, Jesus isn't teaching against, you know, faithfulness in prayer and persistence in prayer. Of course, he will. He will teach that later in this gospel. But, but rather, the, the heart of the matter, the spirit of the matter, is that we pray by faith. As James reminds us, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It is faithful prayer. So friends, where are you being tempted in this area? Do you know that your God is an all-powerful God? That you can ask big things of a big God? To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think? You can't think up a prayer that God cannot answer. There is nothing, there is no need that you and I will face in our journey that God is unable to act. 
Now, he may be unwilling to act. So we need to distinguish the difference between the will of God and the ability of God. We may ask for things that's not in the will of God. That doesn't mean that he's unable, that he's powerless, and that we're helpless. Which are you this morning? More tempted to make a show of prayer or tempted to pray without faith? These are two temptations that we must avoid by pursuing this pattern prayer that Jesus lays before us. Let us trust that God sees all and knows all when we pray. Well, let's dive in here for just a moment on this pattern prayer. What is known as the Lord's Prayer, some have sought to redefine it perhaps as the Disciples' Prayer, regardless of what title we put across the top, the point remains the same. That this is a pattern for how we are to pray. And there's really two main parts of this prayer. Jesus says, pray then like this. And, and he has this opening, our Father in heaven, or our Father which art in heaven, for y'all King James lovers out there. You'll see that first, in verses 9 through 10, there are three prayers listed there. And it is worship of God through prayer. Hallow your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. In other words, pray that God will get the glory, pray that God will reign over all, and pray that God's purposes will be fulfilled. And so Jesus here teaches his disciples to begin the prayer, to begin prayer with worship. Perhaps you've heard of the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. That we are to begin prayer with adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then finally supplication. In fact, our services are, are somewhat organized around that particular acronym. We begin our time gathered together by praising God for who he is. By confessing our sin, by giving thanks, by by supplication, by petitioning God and asking. Jesus here teaches his disciples that prayer is to begin with worship. And then secondly, in verses 11 through 15, Jesus teaches his disciples to petition God through prayer. And he teaches them to pray for a number of things. First, in verse 11, to pray for physical need. Give us this day our daily bread. Secondly, uh, pray for personal forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then finally, in verse 13, a prayer for protection. Pray for protection from temptation and sin. So you see these two aspects. First, worship. And then secondly, petition. In other words, our petition is to follow our understanding of who we are praying to. That if we submit ourselves to, the, to who God is and his character, then our petitions, our requests, will be rightly oriented. Jesus begins this prayer by, by identifying the object of our prayer, that is, our Father in heaven. Notice these, three, these, these words that Jesus strings together. Our Father in heaven. Jesus identifies God as our Father. Not my father, not your father, but our father. Throughout this um, prayer, it is corporate in nature. Our prayers, while individual, individual in nature, are to be corporate in everyday aspect of life. This is why we gather together to pray together. That we pray to 
our Father, not just my Father. And, and so what we're pushing against is the temptation to individualism that is so often accompanied. Secondly, here we see that we are to pray to our Father. Again, as I, in, as I uh, alluded to earlier, uh, that God is our Father. We are in relationship to Him. We have been adopted such that we are sons and daughters, as the Apostle Paul taught in Romans chapter, chapter 8 and verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Abba, Father. Our Father. And our Father, here on our fathers here on earth may have failed. Our fathers here on earth may have fallen short in supplying our daily needs, but our Father who is in heaven does not fail. He is our Father. You're His Son. You're His daughter. Notice also that Jesus here orients the location of the Father, that He is in heaven, not on earth. That the the matters before the throne of grace are heavenly matters. This isn't the location of God in the sense that he's in the sky, but rather pointing to his transcendent nature. Our God transcends all that heaven is near us. It is not far off. And so Jesus calls us to worship God through prayer. He says, hallowed be your name. He begins with this first petition. And often in our modern evangelical translations, it it sort of loses some of the the thrust of it because we we have that hangover from the King James Version. But the idea here is an invitation to worship the name of God, to pray that God will get the glory, to pray that God's name is hallowed, that it is praised, that it is respected. Our object, our our goal in everyday life is to see God's name known where it is not known. That is what John Piper says is what missions is all about. It's about making Jesus known where he is not known. This is what our endeavor is. This is what we are to pray towards. That we are to see God's name sanctified where it is not sanctified. Secondly, we see in verse 10 that we are to pray That God will reign over all. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done, your kingdom come. It is a prayer that Jesus invites us to pray that God's will, his sovereign purposes would reign over all in the purpose, in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus arrived on the scene there in Jerusalem. When Jesus arrived on the scene there in Galilee, when Jesus arrived anywhere, he declared that the kingdom of God was at hand, that they were to repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus ushered in the beginning of God's kingdom. And our prayer as Christians is that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Thirdly, we see in this prayer of worship that we are to pray that God's purposes will be fulfilled. Your will be done. Jesus invites us to pray that God's will is done, not only in our individual lives, but in our corporate gatherings together. 
God's purposes are being worked out. God's will is being fulfilled through the evangelism and the salvation of sinners. Every sinner who bows his knee is one more corner of God's kingdom claimed and his will done. This is our prayer, individually and corporately, that God's will be done in our lives through obeying his word. As Romans 8.28 teaches us that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Brothers, sisters, we want to pray that God's purposes are done here on earth. Not our purposes, but God's purposes. Not our wills, but, but God's will. Do, do your prayers have a, a particular orientation that what you most desire is that God's will be done and not your own? So often our prayers are motivated more by our selfish will than God's will. More motivated to see what we want rather than what God wants. And so part of praying this pattern prayer is seeing that God is the object of our prayer and not ourselves. When we rightly orient ourselves in that way, then we are able to petition in a way that is informed more by the character of God than by our own selfish desires. But we are to petition. And we don't want to miss this point. So as hard as we're hitting this idea that we are selfish in prayer, God is gracious to invite us to pray for needs. Again, it is not wrong to pray for physical needs. It is not wrong to pray for our health or, or to pray for prosperity, to pray for physical needs. In fact, Jesus invites us to do the same. Look there at verse 11. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. It is a petition. It's a prayer for physical need. Jesus uses an imagery, a picture. Give us this day what we need for tomorrow. Give us what we need to supply our every need. As the, as the Apostle James taught us, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. It is not wrong to pray for physical need. Jesus himself teaches us to pray that God would supply. But it is a posture, isn't it, of dependence? It's a posture that we can't receive our daily bread. You know, for you and I, I bet you we have perhaps refrigerator stock, freezers. If we were in a pinch and we didn't have any money, I, well, I bet you we could scrounge something up to eat today. I mean, we are Americans after all. We could run down to McDonald's if we needed to, get one of those dollar, uh, dollar burgers. It, we could scrounge up a dollar, perhaps. But in this particular culture, many day laborers would have been paid that day. They they wouldn't have been paid at the end of the week. They would have received what they needed for that day. They didn't know if tomorrow was coming. They didn't know if bread would, would come, resources would flow. It was a sense of life or death. And you and I and, and need to have a sense of warning here in this culture where, where we have a stockpile of things, where we can hoard things and we can keep things and feel safe in our things. To learn to pray prayers of dependence upon God. That if God does not supply our need, we are undone. We see also we are to pray for personal forgiveness. 
Now, fascinatingly enough, this is the only prayer that Jesus offers further commentary on. In verse 13, Jesus says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, Jesus is not speaking here of physical debt or monetary debt, you know, that we've paid off our credit card bill. And, well, those folks that have borrowed money from us, they've, they've paid back their debts. Not at all. Rather, what Jesus is calling on here is for personal forgiveness. Forgiveness not only of ourselves and forgiveness of others. Notice here what he writes in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus uses this word of trespass. It literally means a crime against God's law, a breaking of the law. A trespass would have been anything that would have violated God's law. And Jesus says that if someone has done something to you that you are to forgive them as to the level that God has forgiven you. If you have been forgiven, then we ought to be forgiving people. Jesus warns here that that our vertical relationships and our horizontal relationship are related. That we are arrogant to believe that God would hear our prayers for forgiveness if we are unwilling to forgive others. In fact, The New Testament teaches that it is an oxymoron for someone to have been forgiven by God to withhold forgiveness from others. In other words, if you have truly been forgiven of God, then you forgive. That doesn't mean it's easy to forgive. It doesn't mean it just, you know, happens easily and and, uh, at the snap of a finger. But our desire, our aspirations must be that of forgiveness of others. We are to pray that we would be forgiven and that we would forgive others. And this morning, I wonder, are there those in your life that you are unwilling to forgive? How is that affecting your prayer? How, how do you heartily go before God with pride asking for personal forgiveness all the while withholding the forgiveness of others? You remember Peter asked Jesus the same question. He's like, all right, Jesus, I got a question for you. It's going to be a good one. His disciples had the knack of asking really good questions. Um, and on one occasion, his disciples asked him, all right, we're to be forgiving people. We got the principle, Jesus, but how many times do we forgive? Like, is there ever a time where, all right, this is it. This is the line in the sand. And Jesus responds and he says, seven times seven. In other words, no, there's never a time when you don't forgive. There's there's never an occasion where as a believer in Christ, you're unwilling to extend forgiveness, where you're unwilling to seek reconciliation. Never a time, he says, that we are to be people who forgive. Now, that doesn't mean that you become best friends with those who've hurt you and and, and all things are well. But it does mean that you forgive them, that you take it to the cross, you lay at the feet of Jesus, and you trust the Lord. You trust his judgment, you trust his justice, and you don't seek vengeance yourself. 
As Christians, we want to pray for personal forgiveness, and we do want to see the salvation of even our enemies. As Jesus has taught us at the end of chapter 5 here in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Let that be said among us. Finally here, Jesus prays that teaches us to pray for protection from temptation and sin. Verse verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus encourages us as his disciples to to pray that, that we would be protected from temptation. Now, again, this doesn't mean that God is tempting us and that, that God is, would then lead us into temptation. That's not the idea here. Rather, that we would be protected from temptation, that it would not overcome us, that we would not succumb ourselves to temptation, but that we would be armed up and guarded from it. More than that, that we would be protected from evil. Deliver us, he says, from evil or the evil one. Deliver us from any form of evil that we might face. Jesus similarly prays in John chapter 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Or 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Friend, when is the last time you got up in the morning and prayed, Lord, keep me from temptation today? If you wondered that maybe you befall temptation, you fall into temptation, you struggle with temptation because you rarely pray that God would protect you and deliver you from it? Let's be more proactive rather than reactive to temptation in our life. You will face temptation today, all right? You're going to face it tomorrow and the next and the next until Jesus comes again. There ain't going to be one day. Hence why we sing, I need thee every hour. There is not an hour in the day where you are safe from the evil one. There's not a moment in the day where you are safe from the the guiles and the wiles and, and all the schemes of the devil. The whole world system is set up on you falling flat on your face. We need to begin by praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What do you pray for, brothers and sisters? What, what, what makes your prayer list? Do your prayers concern the worship of God or the worship of self? Do your prayers focus on the right things or the wrong things? Let us not just merely recite these words, but rather let them inform the things that we pray for. Now, very clearly, you'll see in your English Standard Version, or if you have another modern evangelical translation, you'll see, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, missing. (laughs) All right, so the translators didn't delete that, all right? Some of the oldest manuscripts, that's missing. It was probably added in centuries after the New Testament was written. And therefore, why it doesn't show up in this particular passage. But the point for us that remains, that God has called us to a life patterned after prayerfulness. That you and I want to not merely utter these words rotely, but allow them to affect our hearts and lives. Prayer is the means that God uses 
to bring about his purposes. God is inviting you. He's inviting us as a congregation into what he is doing around the world. And so may we be those who are known for our diligent prayers, prayers of faith as we entrust ourselves to the glory of the Father through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray this would be true of us this morning. Much more could be said about this rich passage. Lord, may we spend a lifetime meditating on this prayer and how you've used this prayer to transform the world around you. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.